we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful, of course, uh, for your word um, and the way that we show our gratitude, our thankfulness for your word is to read it, to take it up, to say thank you that you have given this to us would be an empty thanks if we just let it sit and collect dust. But we say thank you to you because we know the treasure that it is. We know that between the covers of this book are the words of eternal life. And so we pray that you would enable us to receive all that is here for us. We come asking you who you are and who we are, how our life is to be. And so I pray that you would speak to us and grant us your wisdom and grace. And grant us your spirit that we may live this out. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Ephesians in chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read this passage on marriage, verses 22 to 33. Ephesians chapter 5, please. And this is the word of the Lord. Wives. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body, therefore. A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. As we mentioned last Sunday, this is a, a simple passage, at least to outline. There's a word to wives, a word to husbands, and some reasons why. Uh, the word to wives is that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. The word to the husband is that he is to love his wife as Christ has loved the church, that he is to love his wife as his own body, to nourish and care for his body as he does. He should nourish and care, uh, cherish his wife as well. And because there is this union between man and woman, husband and wife, that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. And then he twists it and he says, this is a profound mystery because he's speaking about Christ and the church. 
Now, to fit this in its context is helpful, I think. Uh, remember we said that it fits in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, to, to, to make this work, really, uh, Paul anticipates that we're filled with the Spirit, that we've yielded ourselves, we yield ourselves to this Holy Spirit in such a way that he fills us, that is, he controls us, um, being filled with the Spirit. And that means when we're filled with the Spirit that we will exemplify Jesus. The work of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. And so when he fills us, what he means is that we'll be filled with the very presence of Christ in such a way that our lives are transformed to be like his, that we're being created um, in his likeness, being conformed to his image. And, and you see, that fits, that helps us so much uh, because the spirit of Christ is the spirit of humility. And therefore, when wives are called to submit, wives are not called to do anything all Christians aren't called to do. Remember in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, the general understanding of who we are as believers. But as we exemplify Jesus he submitted to his father. He said, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not my will, but yours be done. And so we see that, that Jesus in humility did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, you see. And so in humility, he submits. And so wives are called to be like Jesus in this sense, to submit to their husbands. And then husbands, you see, are to be head of their wives. That's true of them. They're simply head. And, and so the question is, but how? How is that headship demonstrated? Well, it's demonstrated as the headship of Christ is demonstrated in that he gave himself, you see. So as the Holy Spirit fills us, then for husbands, as we exemplify, as husbands exemplify Christ, they will exemplify this humble, servant-like life and gift to their wife. Uh, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's how Christ loved. He gave himself. And so that's the call to husband. So you can see the importance of the necessity of uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit who comes to glorify Jesus that we might exemplify him, his presence uh, in us. And then we see this verse 32, which is very important for us, where the apostle says, this mystery is profound. And certainly there is a, a wonderful mystery involved in how a man and a woman can be united together as one flesh. And uh, that's the call. But, but that's not what he's talking about. He says, I'm talking about this union of Christ and the church. Now, a mystery in the scripture, and especially in Ephesians, because he uses that word a number of times, uh, a mystery is something that's always been true, but has been hidden, but now is revealed. And what's been hidden, but now revealed. What's been hidden, but now revealed because Christ has come, is the marriage relationship models, and is a model of, the relationship between Christ and the church. God has a, has a great advantage over any other one who teaches because when he's looking for an illustration, he just makes it. 
Right? <laughs> and so he, he made marriage, unbeknownst to us in Genesis 2, as his illustration. He says, you see it all the time. You see two becoming one all the time. In marriage, I, 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 I made it like, uh, like that. Uh, and so here it is. It's a great mystery, Christ in the church. You see it, you see. You see it all the time. And so if we are to understand marriage, it's helpful to understand the relationship between Christ and the church. If we're to understand Christ and the church, it's important for us to understand marriage. They, they work together. They inform uh, one another, if you will. Marriage anticipates this other um, union of Christ and the church. And so uh, he says you need to know about this. This is a profound mystery. Here I'm talking about Christ uh, in the church. Now, again... As we read through the scripture, this relationship between God and his people is often put in this marriage context. God in the Old Testament often shows himself or speaks of himself as the husband of Israel and she, his wife. There's a passage, a moving passage in, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophet Ezekiel. And uh, it's a bit graphic, but... He speaks of taking Israel, God does, as his, as his bride. Now, if you read through the rest of the prophetic word of Ezekiel, you'll find that she was faithless and all of that. But here's how he puts Israel as his bride. Verse 1 in Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, that is to Ezekiel. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. <clears throat> your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was, was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And so he's saying, you were just, no one cared for you. Then verse 6. And when I passed by you, God says, when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. And then verse 8, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. And I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adored you, I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in, in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the, the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. And so he gets this great sense of, of Israel, my people, you're mine. I'm, I'm, I'm united to you as a husband to a wife. And so when we read in the Old Testament, what we find then is the sin and faithlessness of Israel is often couched 
and the expression of adultery, right, of unfaithfulness. As we think in the context of marriage, that's a marriage word. But he said, no, this sin to you, I'm your, I'm your husband, we're united. When you're unfaithful to me, you, when you break covenant, then it's like adultery. It has that same, we should sense, emotion, if you will, and, and betrayal of, of adultery. And then we come to the New Testament. Jesus infers from time to time that he's the bridegroom. And they said, well, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus said, well, when the bridegroom is here, no one fasts, right? And he, he tells parables about wedding feasts. And then we see it very clearly in Revelation in chapter 21 at the very end uh, of this Revelation, verse 1 Uh, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the church, the very bride of Christ. That's where we get that expression. And so we see this union of Christ and his church. That he is the bridegroom. We are the bride, if you will. We're united together with him. So when we read this as a profound mystery, we go, oh, I see it. I get it. Uh, uh, It's now revealed clearly in Jesus as so much is that was concealed in some way before. But but now we really, we really see it. That's why uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I refer to from time to time, was, it was funny. I, I, there's a young woman who used to be in our congregation who's now in another part of the country. Her husband's a pastor. She's leading a, a, um, a Bible study in her church on Ephesians. So she's following along and we're writing back and forth. And she had m- realized I had mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones's sermons to her. So she thought, this is great. I'll read them. Well, I forgot to tell her there's six volumes and like, 200 sermons. He's even slower than me. But uh, she made note of that as well. But, because uh, she may pass me soon. But the um, but Lloyd-Jones was a physician uh, and uh, quite a heralded one as a young man. Um, and uh, his practice uh, held the, the wonderful honor of being the practice that was the physicians to the queen in London. So you can imagine that. He was quite no, well known even as a young man, but in his late 20s, not only had he become converted, but he was sensed a call to ministry. So he left all of that and became perhaps um, one of the most, if not the most well-known um, preacher in England in the middle of the last century. But his point here concerning marriage is to say that if you want to understand marriage, you have to understand the cross, But the most important thing in understanding marriage, the most important subject to study is the atonement. He says, if you study the atonement, if you study the cross, then you'll understand marriage. Because you see, it's all about Jesus as head of the church. And it's all about what that means. And so, wives need to understand about the atonement because wives are to submit to their husbands, who is their, their head, as unto the Lord. How does he put it here? Um, wives submit to your own husbands 
as to the Lord. So she needs to understand who the Lord is. A wife has to understand who the Lord is because she's going to be, first and foremost, submitting to the Lord. And the Lord says, now submit to your husband. And for her to be able to submit to her husband, she really is trusting the Lord, you see. And so for a wife to submit, she has to understand who the Lord is and what he has done. And then he goes on, verse 25, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You'll notice when Paul addresses husbands, there's no command to be the head. It's just simply true. He says, this is just the way it is. You're the head. The command to the husband, the imperative for the husband, is to love. To love his wife. And the model of this love is as Christ loved the church. So if a husband is going to understand about marriage, husband has to understand the atonement. He has to understand how Christ has loved the church and given himself for her. So the most important thing to study, if you want to study marriage, the most important thing to study is the cross. To understand the atonement. That will enable you to understand this union between a husband and wife and how it is how it is to be. So what I want to do today, if God will help me, is to take up this section that begins with verse 25. I'll talk about submission uh, next week. Um, unless the Lord comes and then I'll be happy. I don't have to do that, but uh, I'll talk about it next. Uh, actually, it's a delightful subject. Um, and uh, but, but I want to emphasize the work of Christ that we see beginning in verse uh, verse 25, he, he says in uh, verse 23 that the husband is the head of the wife. And thus, for submission to take place, there needs to be one to whom to submit. And so a wife submits to the husband who is the head. And it, it seems that um, this headship of husbands is grounded first in creation, but more particularly here in redemption in the work of Christ. And when I say it's grounded in creation, if you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and read through that, we haven't time right now to do all of that, but as you do that, you you see certain things happening there in relationship to men and women, ultimately Adam and Eve as husband and wife. In Genesis 1, we realize that God created uh, human beings, male and female, in his image, both together. So there's perfect equality. Not one is superior to the other or one, the other inferior to the other, but they're both men and women, male and female, created in the image of God, of equal worth, of equal value. So we get that as we read through Genesis 1. Fascinatingly, always, when you get to chapter 2 of Genesis, it's sort of like you take that sixth day and, and you get a spotlight on it. It's like, okay, this is, this is what happened in the creation of human beings very particularly. I mean, if, if you just read through Genesis 1, you would think that God created human beings in the same way as he made the light. He just spoke it into existence. But when you read Genesis 2, you see something different, not contradictory, but just more detail about how Adam and Eve, how the, our first parents were created. And you find that Adam was created out of the dust of the ground and God breathed his spirit into him. And that Adam, the man, was created first and put in the garden to work it. And Adam then was given the command not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, the covenantal terms of how God would relate to human beings 
were, were given to Adam first, before Eve was even created. And then, uh, in a very interesting part of Genesis 2, uh, God realizes that, that Adam needs a helper. And so he brings all the animals that had been created before Adam for Adam to, to name. And the, the interesting expression after the end of all of that, that is that a suitable helper for Adam was not found. So you get the impression that Adam's looking at all these animals going, it's a giraffe. That won't work. That's a elephant. That won't work. You know, that's a cheetah. That's not going to work. So there wasn't any suitable helper for Adam to be found. So, so then he slept and God takes a rib and makes one who is bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, this woman. And when Adam sees her, he says, that, that's it right there. All right. That's bone. That's one like me. That's that 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 fits. This is, we're complementary. We can be united together. Then the scriptures. Therefore, since one was made fitting for Adam, a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. That's the institution of marriage. Now, in the midst of that, then, we realize that there is a relationship, a compatibility between the two of them and a complementarity between the two of them, clearly physically. And so now, then, we find in Genesis 3, the serpent comes. And the serpent comes to Eve rather than Adam. Adam was there as the guardian of the garden in the beginning, even before Eve. But the serpent comes because he perverts everything, comes to the woman first, and and she then is tempted and eats of this forbidden tree, if you will. And then Adam, who had every opportunity, it seems, to take some initiative here and kick the serpent out of the garden, didn't. And along with Eve, eats of this forbidden fruit. And then we find they recognize their sin. They go and hide, and God comes to look for them. And when God comes to look for them, he looks first for Adam. Because it was Adam to whom he first spoke. It was Adam who had the primary, not the ultimate, uh, not the only, but the primary responsibility to obey God in this instance. And so he says, Adam, where are you? Then ultimately, Adam blames Eve. Eve has to speak to defend herself, if you will. But God comes to Adam. Then ultimately, Adam, as head Names Eve, his wife. And then when we come to the New Testament, we find in Romans chapter 5 that it's always referred to this incident of sin and disobedience, the sin of Adam. And it's always Adam's disobedience that brought human beings into condemnation. And then another one comes who's named the second Adam, who is Jesus, whose obedience brings justification and eternal life. And so we see a sense, even in the garden, of this sense of headship for Adam, sense of responsibility, sense of authority, sense of rule. And even as we read of Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, that he is head. Verse 22 of Ephesians 1 says, And he, that is the Father, put all things under his feet, that is the Son, and gave him, that is the Son, as head over all things to the church. Jesus is head over all things. And he's given to the church for the benefit of the church. He 
He's head over all things. If you can picture this, this is an amazing picture as a believer in Jesus when you get up in the morning to realize that Jesus is head over all things. He's ruling and reigning over all things for the blessing of, for the benefit of his bride. And as his bride, we should think, I like that. That's good. Not only is there someone in charge, but the one in charge loves me. And the one who loves me is ruling and reigning over all things for the benefit of his, of his bride, you see. Now, that's this sense of headship. So when we talk about headship as a husband, we're talking about some sense of authority, some sense of rule, some sense of responsibility that's different than his wife. And the question then is, how, how is that demonstrated? How is that headship lived out? Now, in the culture of the day, which this would have been utterly shocking, they wouldn't have been shocked to hear that the husband is head of the wife. What they would have been shocked with was how that plays out. Because it doesn't play out by ruling her by way of your strength, physical strength. It doesn't come by bullying your wife or making rules for her to follow so that, so that she's, in essence, your slave or, or bellhop. Isn't that a wonderful little expression, bellhop? Most of you don't even know what a bellhop is, but you can think about it. When the bell rings, then somebody else hops. Right? And that person is known as the bellhop. And so, uh, um, uh, don't try that at home, uh, gentlemen. But, uh, the, uh, but that isn't the way that this is, but that's the way that these men would have first thought about that. Oh, sure, I'm the head of my wife, therefore. Right? And we know how abusive this can be in, in life and in, in the world, even in history and the world in which we live, where take their wives for granted or worse. Or men see their wives as only available for producing children, but yet they're mistresses on the side and that's acceptable. And you go, no, 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 no. That isn't it at all. How is it that a husband, you see, is head of his wife? Well, Paul lays it out in no uncertain terms. He says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for That's a sacrificial, selfless love that I'm willing to sacrifice for your well-being as Christ was willing to sacrifice for our well-being, the very well-being of his church. Everything, his reputation, his life, he gave himself. That's how, of course, it is, it is to be. And what is that? Well, uh, in Romans chapter 5, we read about the love of Christ, that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It's that kind of love, that kind of self-giving. To whom? Well, uh, to those who are still sinners. Christ, you see, that kind of love, that kind of faithful, steadfast love, even to those who don't deserve it. That's, it's that deep the love. That's the love of Christ. He gave himself for sinners. He gave himself not only for his friends, but also at that time for his enemies, for those who had turned against him. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then we also know from Romans in chapter 8 that 
the love of Christ for us is eternal. It's an eternal love that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He doesn't stop loving. That's the wonderful expression in the Old Testament that's often translated as steadfast love. But, but if, you, if you're old and you grew up on the King James Version of the Bible, the, the wonderful expression is the word loving kindness. It just means steadfast love, covenantal love, but it's a steadfast love. It's a love that doesn't stop loving, and it's that kind of love with which Christ has loved us. You know this if you're a believer in Jesus. You know this. You know this kind of love. It's undeserving. You know your sin. You, you know that you don't deserve it, and, and yet you realize that still he loves us still. He, our bridegroom, is ruling and reigning over all things, looking after everything that is, and, and ruling in such a way that will be for our blessing, the blessing of his people, the well-being of his people. That's what he's doing. That's what it means to be head. It means to use everything that you are and everything that you have in order for your wife to flourish materially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way you're thinking, husband, about her life, about your wife, and how she can grow and flourish, all of that. It's an unselfish love. Philippians chapter 2 says of Jesus that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Was he equal with the Father? Yes. He said, I'm not going to grasp that. I'm going to empty myself so I may serve, be a servant. It's that kind of serving, you see. And it's a love that's demonstrated. Romans 5, 6, God demonstrates his love. It's a love that can be seen, you see. Husbands, love should be able to be seen, if you will, by your wife. It is sacrificial. He gave himself here in Ephesians 5. We see that, we read that, and it's purposeful. Look at what Christ did. In giving himself. He did it. He gave himself. That he might sanctify her. Cleanse her. And present her. The her here is the church. It's us. Believers in Jesus. The her here is the church. And he, he did it to sanctify her. Now, the word sanctify. Since you got an extra hour of sleep. I can do this today. <clears throat> uh or if you're like me, you just wasted it. But anyway, you got the same amount of sleep, just, it just felt better somehow. But the, the word sanctify in the scripture has two senses to it, right? It has what we call a definitive sense, and it has what we call a progressive sense. So a once-for-all-time sense, but also an ongoing sense. Are you with me? So the once-for-all-time sense is this. The word sanctify means to set apart. To take and to set apart. And so the definitive nature of this, which I think this is primarily referring to here, is that he, he sanctified us. That is, he took us to be his. That way it mirrors a marriage relationship where a man and a woman are standing uh, at a wedding ceremony and the question is asked of the husband, do you take this woman to be yours? That's the sanctifying thing, to set her apart, to be yours, you see. Not in a possessive, abusive sense, but to be united to her in every way. You see, that sense of it. And that's the sense in which if you can think about your life with Christ, that he did that. 
And he looked upon you and he says, I want you. <laughs> I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to set you apart, right? I'm going to set you apart from all the others. The other day, uh, evening, we had some people for dinner and so forth. But we had people over for dinner. We didn't have people for dinner. <laughs> That's a whole different problem. Uh, but um, but uh, so Karen was, I told her, sanctifying potatoes. She looked at me like she always does when I do that sort of thing. And uh, she said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're, you're taking them out of the bag one by one. You're saying, I want this one. I'm going to set it apart for dinner. I'm going to set this one apart for dinner. I'm going to set this apart. You have a purpose for those potatoes. You're, you're sanctifying them. Now, when we think about that in the context of our lives, he sanctifies us to make us holy before the Lord. And that's where we get to at the final presentation. But this sense of sanctifying. Now, there's a progressive sense to this, too. And that is that Jesus still is at work in us, <clears throat> causing us, enabling us to be more like him. That's this progressive sense of, of maturing, if you will. But I think what he has in mind here, he's, he's, he, this is the work of Christ. He gave himself to sanctify us. First Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 6 and verse 11 um, lays it out like this. Um, after a list of sins, verse 11 in First Corinthians says, First uh, Corinthians 6 verse 11 says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so you were sanctified by him, you see. You're sanctified by him. You're taken and now you're his. You're united to him. And he's cleansed you. Remember what I read out of Ezekiel, this passage, moving passage, about God taking this unwashed and washing, cleansing, so that the beauty that he had for her could be seen. And that's what he means here. You can say, well, it's an allusion to baptism, maybe, because baptism talks about washing, and baptism says we need to be washed, and there's this promise of washing for those who have faith in Jesus but cleansed us. Think about that. That Christ has cleansed us. Right? Sanctified us. Cleansed us. Washing water with the word. And what word? Well, the word of the gospel. The gospel comes to us and cleanses us. We hear it and we believe. And what is that word? That word is that Christ has come and given himself. That Christ has come and taken the guilt of our sin upon himself. And pay the penalty so that all who believe in him would, would live, you see, and be forgiven their sins. And not only that, that he gave himself in obedience to his father so that his righteousness would be, would be ours. And so we have this two-pronged idea about justification, this declaration of God that we're righteous. It means that it's just as if we've never sinned and it's just as if we've always obeyed. It's a, an amazing thing. That's why Martin Luther referred to it as an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that comes from the outside that covers us because we know on the inside. He's working on that too. Uh, but that's not why he declares us righteous. We're declared righteous because of Jesus. And so you see Christ has come and says, I'll do everything I possibly can. I'll do everything that's needful so that my bride might be glorious. 
And then one day, this presentation. He says, you can guarantee all of this is together. I call you to be mine. I set you apart from all others to be mine. I, I cleanse you and I present you. And in the presentation, that's where you'll see your glory. And that's where we'll be glorified. Now he says to husbands, love your wives like that. If you're a husband, the first thing that should cause you to do is hit your knees. Because you see your weakness. And you say, please fill me with your spirit. Because only Jesus can love like that. So work that in me that I may be like him so that I may love like that. Help me to love like that so that in everything that I do, my wife is in my mind. Everything I do that she's in my mind and I'm thinking, how will this affect her? How will this bless her? How will this help her to be the woman that God has called her to be? so that she can be glorious in every aspect of her life, whether it's emotionally, whether it's materially, whether it's security, whether it's spiritually. How can I help her? Now, of course, at this point, it's very traditional for pastors to make a long list of what headship doesn't mean, right? So I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't mean all the things that you know it doesn't mean, right? You don't get to be selfish. You don't get to make her do what you want her to do, what you want her to do just to make her do it. This isn't about you. This isn't about control. It isn't about force. This isn't about strength physically or even emotionally. It isn't about that. It's about loving her. It's about loving her. So as a husband, you need to think about that. Here's, here I, here's how I've thought about this. I wrote this up a number of years ago, and I don't consult it often enough. But I made a list of five things for my life. Um, how I understand being head. First point was this. I simply wrote, I want to be a husband who wakes up each morning and thinks first of his wife. Have I done all that I must do so that she's ready to face this day? My normal thought is, Am I ready to face this day? <laughs> I should be thinking, is she ready to face this day? Have I done everything I can possibly do so that she's ready to face this day? I can't take her responsibility that she needs to take in order to make sure she's ready for the day, but have I done all that I can do? And then secondly, I, I simply wrote, I want my, my wife to love being my wife. And not purely out of obedience to Christ. You know, guys, when your wife says something to you like, I'm only staying with you because I love Jesus. Now, you're happy because she loves Jesus and you're happy that she's staying with you. But you would like her also to say, and I like you too, right? Um, so I, I, I wanted to love being my wife. Because I want to live my life in a way that makes her proud. To live my life in such a way that lets her know that she's loved and respected. Uh, to live my life in such a way that she knows she's my delight. In almost every wedding, I, I pray this in the midst of a wonderful wedding prayer that I've adapted from Presbyterian ministry, minister from a previous century. Um, 
I pray this concerning the groom. May his strength be her protection. His character be his, be, be his boast and her pride. And may he live that she may find in him the haven for which the heart of a woman truly longs. And may his soul be so wide a sea that she may launch her all on its strong tide. I pray that for myself. Number three. I want my wife to be utterly satisfied in following Christ. More specifically, I want to live my life in such a way that because she's around me, she wants to follow him. Number four. I want my wife to be so secure in my love for her that however else anyone treats her, whatever anyone else says to her, even whatever else she does, she can't wait to retreat to me. Fifth. I want, my, uh, I want to live my life so that she's equipped to take on all that will come her way, <clears throat> knowing that I stand ready to put myself between her and danger, be it physical or spiritual. Now, <clears throat> even as I read those things and realize um, how short I fall, still, you see, it isn't about who does what. It isn't about who pays the bills or who gets the remote. It's, it's a little about that. Uh, but it's not about those kinds of things, you see. Those kinds of things get worked out. Those kinds of things even change. Culture to culture. Time period to time period. And all that. It's not about those things. Some of those things represent headship in certain cultures. And that's fine. And you can take them up. But it's about the heart of it, you see. Do I love her? That's what it's about, you see. And I realize that great expression that I use from time to time too when an old Scotsman from previous century was asked, what is this congregation's greatest need? I simply rephrase that and what is my wife's greatest need? It's my personal holiness. That's what she needs most. She needs me to be a follower of Jesus. And she needs me to always have in my mind, and she always must have in her mind this, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that He loves us as his church. We're declaring that he gave himself for us. We're declaring that he did that to sanctify us, to cleanse us, and to present us glorious. 
No Christian should ever forget that. No wife should ever forget that. No husband should ever forget that. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know the love of Christ. That we would know that by your spirit, he is with us. Even as we come to this table. And that we pray that your spirit would fill us in such a way. And we would exemplify that we would show forth the very presence of Christ in our lives. Forgive us all for our sins in every way. Enable us to walk by faith that we may live in a way that is pleasing to you. Please meet us here. In Jesus' name, amen.